VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. And what better to do on your day off Memorial Day <laughs> than listen to us? We mm-hmm. really just appreciate that, you guys. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, we do. And you should appreciate us being here. It's a holiday, and yet <laughs> here we are. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are devoted to you. You're devoted to us. It's always appreciated. You know, thanks for leaving all the reviews, sending in the emails. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Uh, Zach, what have you been drinking? Well, that is a good question. I actually did something that I, God, I have not done in very often, which is I went out to dinner um, with my sister. Actually, I took her out for her birthday. Where does your sister a, live? She lives in a different part of Seattle. But oh, okay. oh, so you guys, it's like she lives in another country. You never see her. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, we, it was one of these things where like we went to like a sort of trendy restaurant, which, uh, again, not a thing I get to do as often what anymore as I used to. Well, I mean, it's not like brand new, but it's okay. It's, but it's still, it's a hot restaurant. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so, there, I'm going to talk about what I drank, but I'm also going to talk about what I didn't drink really quickly. And cool. we're going to put a pin in this because it will be a longer, bigger conversation that I don't want to get into now. But I was stunned, and I messaged both of you about this. You did, I, and then you tweeted about it as well. I <laughs> did, and posted on Instagram because it was <laughs> yeah. really shocking to me because it's something that we've talked about in a broader, more abstract sense on the pod before. But I saw it firsthand for the first time uh, and it was a restaurant where literally none of the like 50 or so people in the restaurant were drinking wine and it's not like a wine focused restaurant but it's a restaurant with like you know a wine by the glass program and some bottles and like mm-hmm. you just would think someone would be drinking wine and actually my sister wanted a glass of sparkling wine and she was at that point, then the only person that we saw in the entire space drinking wine, and including me, I had cocktails, which I will talk about in a moment. But it was fault. just stark, and and it's prompted a lot of conversation. You know, some between the three of us, some with some other people I know in the industry, and and again, we'll get into that in another episode because I don't want to kind of sidetrack us too much. But it was really striking, and I will say that for the sake of that upcoming episode, if listeners, if you guys have notice this or if you have thoughts on this please podcast at vinepair.com let us know it's really helpful for us to get this kind of perspective from people throughout uh, the country because i've heard from some people i know in various parts of the country not just in seattle or new york um but it's you know the more we have a sense for what's going on nationwide the better we can understand these trends so anyhow what did i drink uh, i had a interesting cocktail that was um, actually not what i typically would have gravitated towards but somehow it called to me which is a, a drink called the little ed which was actually made with an earl gray infused akavi not typically the spirit I mm-hmm. go for personally, uh, apricot mm. liqueur, lemon and orange bitters, but it sounded kind of bright and fresh and, <clears throat> you know, citrusy. And, and it was a really nice kind of starting point. And then the second drink I had was their sort of house um, Negroni, which was really good, but it raised an interesting question that my sister and I were pondering while we were eating, which was it was served in like a like kind of heavy, like cut glass goblet, I guess is how I, not exactly a goblet, you know, still kind of triangular in shape, but much bigger than the drink. You know, the, the, the fill kind of only came out like a third of the way up the glass maybe. And it just felt like a very odd choice. I mean, I don't necessarily need my Negroni to the absolute rim of the glass, but it was a little like odd. It felt like the drink was not full even when I got it. And I was wondering like, Obviously, with certain drinks, you expect a certain kind of glass. 
And I understand that maybe they feel like these are kind of cool and different and they were in a sense, but like, have you guys ever had that experience where like the glass, the drink is served in just sort of turns you a little bit off from the drink? Always. Yeah. I was just I always an ex- experience like that to share that, today. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Oh, good. Wait, so it was a neat Negroni. Is that what you said? Yeah. I mean, that's just how it came served. I, I just ordered the one that was on the like list. That. It, it served. I don't okay. like a neat Negroni. Yeah. I don't like anyway. a neat Negroni. <laughs> Get that the fuck out of here. But isn't it supposed yeah, as to you be you both neat? prefer yours on the rocks? Yes. yes. But I'll take a Boulevardier. Uh, Up. Mm-hmm. But not a Negroni. Don't do Interesting. that. Interesting. <laughs> Only I want a big rock. I Yeah, I get glass disappointment a lot. Yeah, hmm. I do too. <laughs> I'm like, what? It, well, but you know that's why I like the icons. Yes. But you know why those icons actually exist. I love the icons. Why? A designer created those icons uh, when they, it was like... A few, a few years, a de- over a decade now. Now, um, it was a designer in a bar who recognized and was friends with the bartender that there were certain cocktails that were not being ordered by consumers, specifically men, because they thought the names sounded too feminine, and the men kept asking what the glassware was that they were served in. So, by adding the icons, they sold more drinks because the men then could feel like the the glass, that, the drink that they were ordering, was going to come in a glass that made them feel still masculine. God, men are pathetic. <laughs> but yeah, it's the same thing with beer, why. by the way. Yeah, For, that is true, right? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, like there's, I hear all the time from people that like a certain segment of men will order a beer that's served in like a tulip glass or something that's not like a standard pint glass and then get real pissy about it. Um, and if it's very clearly explained to them, that sucks. Don't do that. Yeah, I, I feel like I've gotten a lot of glassware stuff. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Joanna. Okay, so this is less like I've had this great drink this weekend and more just about a dining experience. So we were out for my parents' 70th birthday this weekend at a very, very stuffy Upper East Side restaurant. What, did they pick it? Yeah. Do they like the Upper East Side? uh, No, not particularly. It's just this particular restaurant. Anyway. I'm going to need you to tell me the name later. Yeah. Um, Yeah, anyway. So we go to this restaurant and we order martinis this actually speaks to how trendy the martini is, I guess. We were there at 6 p.m. on a Saturday night because we have an infant oh, now. Yeah. Was the baby there, too? <laughs> yes, he was. And Did he also have a martini? He did. <laughs> this is his fault. Anyway, the so some of the martinis come out and are served in coupe glasses, mm-hmm. appropriate martini glassware. <clears throat> and some are poured into Orville chalices. What? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know Orville the beer? Wait, why? (laughs) Because they didn't have any more martini glasses left. But this is a—is this a fancy restaurant? Yes, it's an extremely fancy, extremely expensive restaurant. No, and they were serving us martinis served in Orville. They should be (laughs) embarrassed for that. We were like said the name of the beer on it. Yes, they should be embarrassed. (laughs) Fucking wild. We all just stared Did at you the waiters. My brother poured his second one into the first glass. <laughs> so funny. Like, like, did you guys? Were you guys like? Uh... We were shocked, but they didn't have any clean glasses left. Anyway, so I had a gin martini this weekend. It was it was great. It was great. I'm on a gin, Orville, gin martini kick in an Orville glass. Mm-hmm. You making freezer martinis yet? No. Well, I still have the Borg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still have the Borg at home. Dude, the gin martinis. Oh, I need to do that. I'm really into it. Yeah. Naomi's a little too. Joanna, we're going to need an update on when you finally kill the Borg. Yeah. 
It's going to be next year. Evan's going to do it. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. You taking the Borg? Did you take the Borg up for Memorial Day weekend? No. You should. Just take the Borg. <laughs> Spread it around. <laughs> um, that's hilarious. The, I Like, I had to look up the Orwell. And I have it open on my screen right now, and I'm just like, wait, really? It's shocking. I, I really, like, someone should be fired for this. <laughs> Truly. Like, especially at a nice restaurant, yeah. someone should lose their job. It was wild. Well, anyway. Do, do you, you want to shame them? Where was it? <laughs> I don't want to do it. Okay, fine. <laughs> you go, Adam. I need to know. What have you been drinking? Uh, okay, so I'm very proud of myself. I made my first ever Spanish t- tortilla, a tortilla española. I saw that. Uh, How did it come out? Awesome. Nice. Like, really good. <laughs> it was the Times Ferran Adria recipe where he uses potato chips. Nice. It was so, so good. Like, so good. That sounds delicious. And uh, I had a Rioja Pan Crudo uh, that was really delicious, that went perfectly with it. And so that was one of the things I drank this week. And uh, otherwise, I also had a martini. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also, like, recommitted to the fact that I hate dirty gin martinis. Hate them. <laughs> hate them. Like, hate them. I think there's something wrong with I think people are, hurt, hate themselves if they drink a dirty gin martini. <laughs> Like I like dir- oh, dirty gin martini. That's the distinction. It just the here. botanicals are clashing with the olive juice, guys. Got it, got it. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. I don't love a dirty martini, anyways. Mm-hmm. But if I'm gonna have it, I want it with vodka. Um, but like a classic gin martini is just chef's kiss. It's good. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And so I I've made a few of those. Um, you know what I made recently? I forgot to talk about was the New-, New York sour. That's also mm. a great drink. I love yeah. a New York sour. I think it's very underrated, uh, but I think it's a very delicious drink. It is a really great drink. And then I also went this past week to Hawksmoor. Oh, nice. And, and uh, had. I had a really delicious highball. That was, oh, okay. They had a, a gin highball. It was tasty. A gin highball? A gin highball. They, were, they had like a whole highball list. And okay. So Josh had one that was like Japanese whiskey that mm-hmm. was more classic. Cl- more classic. Yeah. Um, and then like... For dinner, we had a really delicious Barolo that was also awesome. <laughs> very on brand. Yes. Very, so very on brand. And I had their martini, mm-hmm. which is super cold, really great. Is it gin? It's gin. And vermouth. Gin, vermouth. And yeah. then they they serve lemon and olives on the side. Nice. So you can, like, dress it how you want, which I think is a nice, nice little twist. Mm-hmm. And it just comes out so cold that it's, like, viscous and tasty and uh, very easy and... Yeah. I mean, they were like, and they were sort of earlier on the martini trend. Yeah, for sure. Um, than a lot of other places. And now, obviously, a lot of other places are also doing the same trick they're doing, which is like serving it super, super, super cold out of the freezer. Yep. But it does create this viscosity to the drink that's just really unique. So, for this this week, I wanted to revisit wine bars. But I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, we've obviously said, like, what is a wine bar? What does that mean? But the, the topic this week that, that I would like to, to explore is, like, what about the themed wine bar? And like, is there is there a purpose? Do we think that they are necessary, or are they limiting? Mm-hmm. And do they and and by their <clears throat> themes, do they either, you know, sort of turn off a certain group of people who don't like the theme of that bar? But do they also like not allow the bar to, you know, offer a much wider breadth of wines? Or does the theme actually, like, cause the person who owns it to focus and be able to, like, offer really incredible things they may not if the whole world was available to them? So 
I'm curious, like, what do you guys think about themed wine bars? And when I talk about it, I'm not talking about, like, you know, a succession-themed wine bar. That sounds fun. <laughs> Actually, I'd go there. Where, like, everyone's dressed like Kendall. Yeah. Um, no, I'm talking about, you know, like, this this wine bar is a Spanish wine bar, or this wine bar is an Italian wine bar, or this wine bar. And also, why do we only see, like, three different kinds? They're always either four. They're either natural. Oh, sure. Spanish, Italian, or French. French. We never see, like, this is a Greek-themed wine bar. I'm sure they exist. Or this is an American-themed wine bar. <laughs> or, like, Texas. In Texas, maybe, but, like, here it wouldn't work. Right. But, like, you know, we always only see those three countries, too. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I wonder if that has more to do with their cuisines. But, anyways, what do you guys think? I like it. I think it's smart for the reason you mentioned. Nothing, whatever, maybe this is a hot take for this crowd, but nothing bothers me more than, like, the textbook wine list. Yeah, me too. Mm. I hate it so much. I like a focused wine. I find it overwhelming. And I think a focused wine list is nice for Mm -hmm. a patron. And I think also for, a, you know, I think it's like you're going to a place. It's it's meant to be transportative, right? So Mm -hmm. you're going to go to a Spanish wine bar and have this, like, Spanish dining and drinking experience as if you were there, right? I mean, um but I but I like that focus, and I think that makes it appealing to people versus just, like, a more general wine bar, mm. which can be anywhere, really. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I think I think to, to elaborate on two things that Joanna said there, one is that the wine bar as a just sort of generic wine bar, as we've talked about, suffers from a real problem in America, which is that it sort of doesn't have a clearly defined use case for a lot of drinkers. If you just want to drink wine, fine, but that isn't a whole lot of people. And most places that sort of call themselves wine bars end up just being restaurants that try and sell a lot of wine, which is fine. That's a, well, maybe not right now the greatest thing to be, but but just sort of traditionally has been a model for restaurants that's fine. But then you're not really a wine bar in any meaningful way. You're just a place that maybe has a few extra wines by the glass than your standard restaurant. And I agree that especially in our modern wine landscape, it can be daunting on all sides to have a wine list that doesn't have any more sort of parameters or definition than like, I don't know, we serve wine. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why natural wine has done well at times and has had some success is because everyone involved, the, you know, the, uh, the proprietors, the employees and the patrons kind of get a sense for what to expect walking in the door. And I think that's where sort of themed or concept driven or very focused wine bars can succeed. And I'll give an example of what I think is probably the best wine bar here in Seattle, which is Le Caviste, which, as you might gather from its name, is a French wine bar. And the owner and proprietor is, and has been since he opened, gosh, over a decade ago now, really adamant about what he's trying to do in a way that I think is not necessarily antagonistic, but is unapologetic. His idea is to was to recreate the Parisian wine bars that he loved in Seattle. And so it's a small space. The, you know, the list is written on a chalkboard. There's, you know, wine by the glass. There are a few bottle options. There's a very limited menu. There's essentially no real kitchen. I mean, they have a couple of like things that they can heat up, but it's mostly Mm -hmm. like cheese and charcuterie and stuff like that. And the wine list is exclusively French. And if you go in there and you ask for something that he doesn't have, he doesn't generally get mad at you he just explains like this is what i'm trying to do this is the concept and for people who have been to a parisian wine bar or just dream about going to a parisian wine bar 
but don't particularly have the ability to do that at, at a whim. It's a really good sort of, you know, yeah, like Joanna said, it's a way to take that trip without getting on a plane. And obviously there are times and places for anyone where you might want that experience and not want that experience. And some people want that experience a lot. And some people might want it, you know, once a year or something like that. But I do think that having that tight of a focus is a benefit for almost any business and especially in sort of the drink space and in hospitality where you can sort of say here's what we're offering and we're offering it in a fashion that is superior to anyone else certainly in Seattle. I think the problem is twofold. One is when you try and ex- kind of go beyond that and and to be clear, Look East is a small space. You know, it probably indoors seats 35 people and they have sort of some additional outdoor seating when the weather is nice, but even that probably takes it to 50 people. So they're not trying to do a ton of volume and they can do that because it's a small team and they don't have a lot of overhead and all that stuff. I think when you try to expand or frankly, even when you push outside of, I would say even outside of the idiom of the French wine bar, I mean, I think even a Spanish wine bar and Italian wine bar in a lot of places might be a tricky sell because those wines and those, those kind of wine cultures don't have as much, universal understanding and sort of cachet as even French wine does. I don't think that's necessarily like right in an objective sense. Obviously both countries and many others, you know, Greece, like Adam mentioned and plenty of other countries, including, you know, the United States have lots of really exciting, interesting dynamic wine scenes and lots to pick from, but from the standpoint of being readily understood by a potentially wide audience, I'm not even sure that going beyond French makes a ton of sense. And so, you know, I think, it's one of these things where like, if you do it well, it can work, but that doing it well part is hard and you got to really have a vision, I think, and stick to it. Yeah. I think I like them when they're done very well, mm-hmm. when they're transportive, as mm-hmm. you guys were saying, I think there's often times when they're not done well and they, or when the theme is so overbearing that it's actually mm-hmm. not fun to be there. I found this the most at like the natural ones where mm-hmm. it's like, they're they're so constricted by the rules they've placed on themselves about how much SO2 or whatever in their own definition of a term that doesn't exist. And there's like hay on the floor. Yeah. There's just, yeah. And, and like they're cows and stuff and <laughs> it's very natural. Uh, you know, mice running all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it, you have that to it, pre- pre- prepare your own tea, you know, you do. to, yeah, you do. whatever. Yeah, that was good. Uh, but I think when they're, you know, I, I think... One of the first ever sort of like themed wine bars that I ever went to was when I was in college and this Spanish themed wine bar opened in Atlanta um, by a a very well-known chef. uh, I think Kevin Rathbun was his name, Mm -hmm. but he opened a Spanish themed wine bar. And like that is the first time I ever experienced like really good Spanish wines and they were affordable because they were Spanish. And it was a very small place, and everything like this is super cool, right? And it was when I first had, you know, Gilda's and and Tortilla Española and things like that, and that's all the place did, and that was super fucking cool. But he clearly had a passion for the space, for that specific kind of place, like had a tapas his, bar, yes, mm-hmm. and had done his research, and the wine list was very focused. There was, and there was also a lot by the glass. Which I also think you have to have yeah. if you're actually a wine bar. That's a theme is a lot by the glass. And there was a ton. And so it was like really fun to go there and sit outside because it was Atlanta. So it was, would be warm in February and like, you know, be there. And like some of my first dates were there mm-hmm. uh, with Naomi. Like they were awesome. It was an awesome spot. Um, I also, but I think like when it's not done well, it really, really falls flat. 
In what way? I think it's just like when they haven't thought about like you know the decor and the theme and like or like okay let's say it's a Spanish wine bar and it's like all they're doing is pouring the main Spanish. They're pouring like some Riojas, mm-hmm. some Chacolí, some Ribera del Duero, some Rueda, like the big regions, and they're also pouring producers that you kind of know. That's not cool. But when they're doing a really focused wine bar where they're also pouring really cool producers you may not have ever heard of before, that's when, like, going there is really interesting. And I think especially when they're pouring wines that are these values, that are mm-hmm. wines that, like, that, that's what I want them to do. I, like, I think the purpose of going to a wine bar is to learn and explore and, and, and find new discoveries. And that means I want them to be able to pour wines that I can actually afford to drink. Right. Like if I go to a wine bar and all the wines in the glass are like twenty three, twenty four dollars, that to me is like not a place I want to go back to, regardless of whether or not the theme is is well done. And then the other, but then the other thing that I think is like a little annoying is that I and I alluded to this at the beginning. My other my other beef with the, the theme wine bar is like I just think that people have gotten to a rut with these three main themes of Italian, French or Spanish Mm -hmm. and like I would just love to see like more Greek wine bars or just like I think that you know what Kindred was doing before it closed was really great this like sort of Mediterranean-esque wine bar where it was all you know they were as long as they touched the Mediterranean these were the countries they were focused on thought that was really cool and it was a way for them to expand out from just one kind one country and allow you to to sort of get to know other places that make really great wines just because again like I think I mean, I think if we if we look, there's, there's probably at least eight to ten Spanish wine bars in New York City, if not more. You know, how many French themed wine bars are they? A ton. Italian, a ton. You know, so I don't know. I just I think it'd be great to have some of these others um, here. An American themed wine bar. I don't know. Could be cool. Mm-hmm. Could be cool. I don't know. Uh, I have a question though. Do you guys have a favorite themed wine bar? Zach does. Well, I definitely named mine, but I want to actually give give one more shout out. So I think an interesting. Yeah, yeah. What's your other one? I think I think there's a really interesting thing that can be done here too. So, you know, it's one thing to kind of look at these European themed wine bars and say like, oh, the part of the appeal to people is it's a way to travel to Europe without you know leaving your house. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the same argument is sometimes made for these kinds of for any restaurant that's centered around a specific cuisine, right? It's an opportunity to experience something that you know, you might have to get on an airplane or whatever for. But I also think that the other benefit to a different kind of themed wine bar, and I'm thinking of my friend's wine bar here in Seattle, um, that's all focused on Washington wine, is that you can also introduce people to things in your own backyard. And I think that mm-hmm. a lot of times people here in Seattle, and I, I would imagine the same is true in New York of, with, with whether it's the Finger Lakes or um, some of the stuff on the North Fork or even just kind of like the greater East Coast wine industry as a whole. You know, people, because they're in the place, sometimes think they have a better handle on what's going on than they truly do because they go wine tasting a couple times or they, you know, oh, yeah, I've tried some stuff from up, from wherever the place is. And, you know, the cool thing about what's going on in in the U.S., and it's certainly true in lots of other wine-producing countries, is there's so much more, you know, innovation, new production, all kinds of interesting stuff happening that unless you're really in the middle of it the way that we are, people just don't, you know, don't have a lot of opportunity to try. And so I think that that's what I love about my friend's wine bar, Sorrel, is that 
it isn't, you know, he's really focused exclusively on Washington. And I mean, look, mm-hmm. is that what I would personally choose to do with a wine program? I mean, it's not. I've run a wine program and that's not specifically what I did. But in a way, it's, you know, in the same way that we talked about with other things, it gives you clear parameters, which are you know easier to work with in some ways. And it's a way for him to kind of make a, a statement about what he thinks is important and, and what he wants to do with his wine program. And I, I think that, you know, that's, that's, you know, you talk about the educational component to a wine bar and how it's a place that people do turn to, to for discovery. And I think that's a really important point and something that some wine bars lose sight of is that, you know, people do gravitate towards when it's done well, they gravitate towards that kind of experience because it's a chance to try things that they're unfamiliar Mm -hmm. with, whether that's variety, producer, place of origin, whatever it might be. And if you can't deliver that on a consistent basis, I think you're probably not doing great as a wine bar because in the end you can't really like, if all you're saying is like, here's some wine and look, we've got some food that goes with it. Like that's just not a very compelling concept whatever the overarching theme of the space might be but you have to deliver you know quality wine good food at a somewhat reasonable price at a minimum and you have to make it so that people want to come back and try new stuff and that i think that last piece is the one that requires a lot of work on the part of the you know the people who run the the wine bar right you have to be constantly out there discovering new things trying new things bringing new things in because if your selection becomes stale people are going to stop coming because they're going to stop discovery and they're just, they're not, they're just not going to come back. They'll buy their favorite wines and drink them at home. Yeah, Yeah. I agree. Um, I don't know what my favorite themed wine bar is or just wine bar in general. You can can give me either. (laughs) I love Lalu, obviously. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like I don't gravitate toward places that really build themselves as wine bars. Like back in the day, I feel like I used to go to terroir a lot. Is that still there? Yeah. I, I don't know. It's still there. <laughs> um, doesn't really have a theme, though. No, it doesn't have a theme. And it has quite a big... It just has the like, theme. One, like, Paul! But that's yeah. not... Yeah, I was going to say, it has an aesthetic, but not <laughs> yeah. a theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. What about you, Adam? I mean, I used to love this one wine bar. It, You know, the person who <laughs> owned it owned it, you know, 10 years ago. For 10 years, he owned, <laughs> he owned a wine bar. It's called it Vino. Uh, I really did love it in Vino, though. I thought it was really well Was it done. a wine bar? Yeah, it was an Italian wine bar. Wine bar. Okay. That then I think as they got busier went and did more food and as rent froze and things like that, they were forced to become more of a restaurant. restaurant but yeah. like, and it's in its you know creation, it was a wine bar, uh-huh. um, and then they put in a full kitchen and everything. Yeah. But uh, I loved in vino, and then I don't know in terms of like other themes of like a specific like themed wine bar. I don't know. I'm ex- I'm really excited to check out Joe Campanelli's place, his new Spanish themed one. If I can if I can get over there, uh, Bar Vinasso. Vinasso. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have not been. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Th- then then I think the wine bars I tend to like are ones that don't seem to have a theme. Like I really like Lalu. Yeah. Um, I guess Place de Fets. That's a wine bar for sure. Tinned fish is the theme. Yeah. Oh. Sems and Skins, I love. I think Sems and Skins is a great wine bar. Yes. One of my favorites. But, like, again, I don't think he really has a theme. No. It's, like, just really great wines that Matt likes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the theme is, like, the owner there. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I still, like, when I think about theme wine bars, I still go back to the place I cannot remember the name of in Atlanta. as like, my kind of first, like, oh, this was this, you know, Spanish wine bar that was sort of taught me about wine in general and, mm-hmm. and poured wines I could afford. Right. That were delicious. It's a formative. 
yeah. place for you. And I think that that's, that's like sort of what I think about. I don't know. If you guys have any, any um, favorite themed wine bars, hit us up at podcast.vinebear.com. Let us know. I'd be super curious to hear what they are. New York is like having a wine bar moment right now. A lot more opening. There are a lot opening right now. A lot more opening, which is interesting given the fact that like we're also saying New York is having a moment where like no one's drinking wine. Um, yeah. But yes, a lot more wine bars opening. But they're opening. They're like they're wine bars that are actually they're like they're presenting as wine bars, but they're actually restaurants. Yeah. That's I think what we're seeing a lot of, mm-hmm. which I think people are using to say we're casual. Like you yeah. know what I mean? Come because we're casual. Like it's, this isn't a scene place. But our so, prices are still going to knock you over the head. Over the head. Yeah. Over the fucking head. <laughs> um, all right, guys. Well, I'll talk to you on Friday. Have a great week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.